Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Just had a good podcast with uh, Perry Batten from Drury. Hopefully, everybody enjoyed that. That should be interesting for you all. You know, how to balance and manage your deer herd. I think those are important topics to think about. You know, I'm on the road here starting next week again. I've got clients, and I'm traveling. And really, I want to focus on a couple different concepts coming up. We're going to talk about ecological benefits of certain species and the detriment to other uh, species. And that's going to surround a whole host of different topics. And one of the topics today, we're going to talk a little bit about predator management surrounding coyotes. And I've got what I feel is an expert on the line, and, and I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but uh, a gentleman that's done a lot of research. And in his papers, which are available to a lot of you all um, out there in the journals, you can actually listen and understand more about how he attacks and approaches this topic. And we'll give you some real world scenarios and how to, I don't want to say predator proof your properties, but to reduce predator risks to, you know, our preserved deer populations. And I think one thing that people miss out on is, you know, the abundance of predators may not necessarily be a bad thing. And maybe we'll hit on that topic today a little bit with Will. So let me get Will on the line. Hey, Will, how are you? I'm doing all right, John. How about you? Good, good. So, you're new to the podcast. We've had Marcus on, and Marcus and I did a turkey management habitat development podcast where we got in some of the details. You have a wonderful podcast together, you and Marcus, and I followed that, and I hopefully you know others have followed that podcast. So I want you to introduce that podcast and talk a little bit about yourself so everyone knows who you are. Yeah, sure. So um, as you mentioned, I co-host the Wild Turkey Science Podcast with Marcus Lashley. We've been doing that about a year, and um, we focus on a variety of topics. Obviously, most of that conversation centers around um, how those topics are relevant to wild turkey ecology and management. But, you know, we talk about things like predation and land management. Of course, it's pertinent to, you know, whatever focal species you're managing for, if that's turkeys or deer or quail or something else. Um, So a lot of relevant information for land managers in general. The way that I the way that I found myself um, as a as a podcast co-host is um, you know basically through my journey in academia. Uh, so I'm also my day job outside of podcasting is I'm an associate professor at Auburn University. I've been here a little over eight years now, and before that, I did my graduate work at the University of Georgia, where I focused on the role of um, using coyote removal to reduce coyote abundance and try to increase spawn recruitment for white-tailed deer in Georgia. And um, I spent about a year after I concluded that PhD research working on a a project during my postdoc 
focusing on um, kind of these population level movements of coyotes so that we could better understand their ecology and potentially their management as well. Yeah, all interesting, good, high level. So I want to just focus on one topic you just brought up, the the role of coyotes in an ecological standpoint. They provide, in my opinion, kind of a natural service in, this, in the fact that they're, in some cases, scavengers, opportunistic type species. But I want you to kind of dial on in your mind, what specifically you think the purpose they serve on the landscape is. I think that's important for people to consider. Sure. Yeah. Um, really good question. And, and one, I think that a lot of us don't think about very often, but I do feel like the more that we understand the ecology and biology of wildlife, it, and even when it comes to predators, you know, the better equipped we are as managers um, to potentially tinker with that, you know, whether that's, you know, trying to reduce coyote abundance or something else. But, you know, the reason that a lot of people, um, I feel, I feel like the reason that people should appreciate coyotes, I guess, maybe a little bit more than they do, even though they can be a pain in the ass, right, is that the reason they've been so successful is because they are obviously filling an ecological role um, that has been vacant. And that is, I think, you know, mostly attributable to the fact that most other large predators, and some people classify coyotes as a large predator, some, you know, more often than not, we call them kind of like a meso predator or meso carnivore, which just means mid sized. But in many cases throughout the eastern United States, they're filling a role that was initially occupied by larger predators, particularly like wolves and, you know, eastern cougars. So we've seen, you know, why that ecological role is important is that we've seen in many cases, this has been demonstrated in ecosystems around the world, not just in the United States and definitely not just restricted to Eastern United States, that when you lose a top predator, it changes the whole wildlife community. In particular, what we often see is um, what's referred to as mesopredator or mesocarnivore release, where those smaller predators, um, you know, either through, direct competition with with coyotes so like you know coyotes killing things like raccoons or possums or other mid-sized predators or they compete with them for food resources which of course lowers the survival and the reproduction of those of those smaller predators because there's just not as much food available for them to live off of and to you know to use uh to invest into reproduction so i think you know that's probably a pretty important ecological niche that they occupy um, we've also seen, you know, many areas of the eastern United States over the past couple of decades, particularly around more developed areas, um, have overpopulated deer herds. And um, in some of those scenarios, if, you know, there's enough coyotes there that they are, in fact, reducing fawn recruitment, they can help bring, bring a little bit of balance to that system. Now, we don't see that they completely regulate those populations down to what we would typically refer to as a social caring capacity where people are comfortable with how many deer are around, certainly in those overpopulated areas, there's still deer vehicle collisions and things like that, but they do help restore a little bit of balance where hunters maybe aren't, um, maybe aren't able to be as effective um, simply because they can't get access to hunt the places uh, that these deer are occupying. So one thing is funny. And for whatever reason, when I think about you and, and please don't take this wrong is, <laughs> Uh, and I told Marcus this when I when I talked to him offline is uh, you're the poop man 
you analyze yeah. a lot of fecal matter, and that's really been one of the things you've spoke about and joked around about on your your particular podcast. And yeah, you know, I I, I can relate to that because I think a lot of times, you know, we don't pay as much attention to the small bits of data. You know, fecal matter is meaningful. You know, not, not just the frequency, but what's what's within that fecal matter. And and you're a bit of an expert in this field, so I'm going to ask you this next question. You know, coyotes being a little bit opportunistic, they're omnivores. Let's just kind of talk about what their diets are like based on your experience. And I know they're seasonal diets. They shift. Um, a lot of people get worried about, and, and I'll just mention one thing, and I did speak about this on a prior podcast. In our areas in the Northeast, we get a lot of different types of snowstorms, snow squalls. You know, the winter severity is high. You know, coyotes mm-hmm. tend to do a lot of uh, movement in storm conditions. That it advantages them on the landscape. And a lot of people kind of worry about, at least in my particular areas, their their impact on the deer herd but they're not just impacting deer themselves they're they're focusing on entire landscape opportunity so being opportunistic they're focusing on rabbits that are available any of the rodents Mm -hmm. that's available particularly kind of smaller species like mice you know things like that voles you know they'll they'll dig through the ground and find those so i kind of want to know like generally their diet consumption over time and and how you look at kind of that as as kind of a deterrent for somebody thinking, oh, they're they're just hammering my deer herd all winter, and uh, I'm going to bring up another example after you talk about this. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, an interesting, you know, before I get into year-round diet, and I'll kind of give like a you know fifty thousand foot view um, of that. But before I get into it, I want to make the point that I think one of the things that people don't recognize about coyotes is that. And it makes them a little bit more of a challenge to deal with if they are interfering with your deer management objectives. But they're opportunistic generalist species. And like you said, they're omnivorous. And so what that means is, in contrast to um, some of those larger predators that I referenced earlier, let's, so let's use like eastern wolf species um, that used to be prevalent throughout the region, you know, prior to the peak in European settlement. Um, those those uh, species tended to specialize more so in their prey. And we know, like, for instance, down here in the southeast, we had the red wolf that was probably way more, their population abundance was probably way more closely linked to the current deer population in an area than coyotes are because they were almost solely dependent on white-tailed deer for food, whereas the coyote can make its living off of a variety of other prey species. Um, so what that means is if a deer population goes down in a given area, it's not necessarily a given that the coyote population is going to track it because they just turn to those alternative food sources. Whereas historically when that native predator was here, they would have, they would have, you know, fluctuated. Think of like the, um, the snowshoe hare and the lynx cycle, right? So snowshoe hares go down, lynx populations go down. We probably kind of had somewhat of an equivalent to that in localized areas with the red wolf white-tailed deer cycle, so to speak. Interesting. But so what we what we largely see <clears throat> throughout the winter time, as you mentioned, is that their diet consists of a lot of mammalian prey. So we see um, lots of deer remains showing up in scat throughout the winter time. One thing that we've al- always kind of had great difficulty in doing is separating um, how much of that is actual predation um, events where a coyote takes down a live animal versus how much of it is scavenging because, you know, a lot of that winter period overlaps with hunting seasons in many areas and carcasses get dumped after, you know, hunters remove the edible portions of the animal. 
Um, and that just kind of confounds our statistics when it comes to that. So we've already always had a difficult time differentiating predation from scavenging during the winter time. But as you also mentioned, we see a lot of use of what we refer to as lagomorphs, so rabbits, um, and then small mammals in the coyotes diet throughout winter time. Um, rabbits always being number one, but various mice, rat, bull species are, you know, also constituting a, a relatively significant portion of the diet. And then as we transition into spring and summer, what a lot of people are surprised to find or to learn is that a significant portion of the coyotes diet during that time of the year is con- consist of plant material and insects. Insects, um, yeah, insects. Yep. Yeah, I was going to yeah, mention so, that. Yep. Right, so grasshoppers in particular really stand out as a commonly used food item. So um, <laughs> if we t- see. If you, if you tell people that, they, they, they almost don't believe that that would yeah. be the case. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, if you think about it, you know, if you're trying to really make a, a subsistence living out there and, you know, you may be able to come across, um, you know, a rabbit, you know, once every few days or something like that. And they're very difficult to catch, but you spend a lot more calories searching for and successfully capturing that animal compared to going out in a field and there's a bunch of, you know, big grasshoppers out there. Sure, you have to eat a lot more of those, but they're fairly calorie dense, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 interesting, but it, it's sensible. And you see this with canines all the time. The, the, a lot mm-hmm. of them are insect eaters. Just start to yeah. pay attention to your own animals at home and what they prefer. There's some similarities and overlaps here. We, we've just domesticated them too much. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then, um, you know, also throughout the summertime, if you've got any areas that are, you know, producing berries like blackberries, Berries, they'll take advantage of those persimmons later on in the summer and the early fall uh, pears. Um, I mean, we've had, you know, during the summertime when we're doing those scat, those scat surveys that you talked about a little, little while ago, um, we, we don't even have to look around to know what fruits are ripe because it's right there. It's going to show up in the coyote scat. I mean, <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. when we're picking up these scats, we're trying to get a little bit of fecal material um, so that we can get a, you know, extract DNA from it and tell which individual coyote that is so that we can get estimates of population and things like that. But like when they're, when those scats are almost a hundred percent persimmon seeds or blackberry seeds or muscadine seeds, it's really hard to actually get a DNA sample from it because I mean, the scat just falls apart, you know? I mean, that's, that's how hard they shift to those food items. Well, and here's an important thing to mention to people. If you're talking about building landscapes and and just, this is very simple, right? We just talked about scat seed dispersal. This is a methodology to increase seed dispersal across the landscape. This is a pocket of, you know, obviously there's a nutritional benefit, but then obviously we're trying to explore opportunities. A lot of the folks on this are thinking about how to develop a landscape Rubus being one of those species that they would prefer, particularly in the north, right? It's a good food, good cover. Um, these are an opportunity to spread those blackberries, raspberries across your landscape. So just think about the benefit that the coyote may provide in that in that sense, in that lens. Sure, um, sure, yeah. Yeah, so I want to go down a, a slightly different road because we've, we've hit some factors here. But I want to just, uh, I want to quickly talk about game birds specifically. And I, I wasn't going to go there, but I'm going to go there real quick. Turkeys. Uh, detriment mm-hmm. to turkeys, this is obviously something you talk about in your podcast and other game birds, is the impact of coyotes or let's say other predators 
higher as compared to coyotes on the, the game birds that we're trying to preserve, turkeys being one of those, just in some of your studies as of recent? I know that's a very broad question, um, but have, right. you, have you seen a shift where coyotes are meaningful in the detriment to the populations of maybe a certain age class type turkey, et cetera? Or are those really other predators that are other predators are impacting, you know, and obviously this is the life stage of the particular animal, et cetera. Sure. But what, sure. What you, what's your just quick take on that topic? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, um, well, uh, let me back up a little bit. We So we know that coyotes are taking a number of, prob, you know, adult turkeys, young turkeys, and even eggs. Um, now, are they the top predator in any of those categories? You know, it depends on the study that you look at. Um, but going even further than that, what I would like to see is, like, you know, what is the average proportion of annual adult or juvenile mortality that coyotes are actually responsible for. And unfortunately we don't have those numbers. And the main reason for that is, you know, oftentimes a a lot of the adult predation in particular happens when the hens are on the nest and, and it doesn't matter if if a predation event happens during that nesting season or really get any other time of the year. By the time we actually know the bird is dead and we find the bird, there's just so little evidence that's left over for us to make a determination. And even if we can determine that a coyote was there through some method, um, you don't really know if that was before the death or after the death, right? Was it scavenging or was it actually predation? But, you know, I would suspect that, you know, you think about a hen sitting on a nest for basically a month, um, barely leaving, you know, maybe for an hour here and there. And it's almost impossible to think that, in an area with an abundant coyote population that they're not finding a significant number of those hens potentially. But like I said, we don't know exactly how many that is. All interesting facts and it's understandable why that data is not available. I guess the next question I have for you is just from raccoon management and and I'm not focusing on game birds at this point, but managing raccoons with coyotes and foxes for that matter as well. Those are obviously predators of turkeys so thinking more holistically at a higher level, this, these layers, obviously the hierarchy, are you noticing that the coyotes are doing a good job managing the raccoon population and, and are, are they a, a resource for you, so to speak? Is that, yeah. is, is that a strategy? Yeah, you know, I get asked that a lot and I feel like um, people are becoming, hunters and land managers in general are becoming more educated and starting to think more about the ecology of how all this fits together. So I I think that's probably driving the increase in the number of times I get asked this and I wish I had a better answer to it. Um, But really, you know, just from, just from a pure food habits perspective, we don't see nest predators showing up as a food item very often in coyote diets does that mean that they're not killing them and, and choosing not to consume them? Absolutely not. It also doesn't really tell us anything about how that competition for food resources. I mean, obviously raccoons and possums eat, you know, rubus too. So, you know, how much is that food resource composition or competition potentially limiting populations of those other species? We really don't know. But going back to what I said earlier about, you know, the the mesocarnivore release hypothesis, it would stand to reason that if there is a predator out there on the landscape that is higher up the food chain than the predator that you're concerned about. So in this case, like mid-sized predators like coons and possums, that there would be some kind of competition occurring that would probably help keep those populations in check 
versus if that larger predator was absent from the landscape. So I guess my answer, my short answer on this is it stands to reason that they may be helping to suppress populations of those smaller predators, but we don't really have good data on that yet. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm sure there's some interrelationships there that are hard to describe fully without really kind of dialoguing a little bit more. And obviously this is a long-term assessment game for you. Yeah. You know, one interesting fact I, I bumped into this year and it was, you know, I, I have a lower coyote population in my particular area. And when they are there, they're there sporadically, which is a good thing. And in, in my view, at least the way I've laid out my property, but my Fox population has increased exponentially. I've got pairs yep. of foxes that have kind of just addressed, I think some of the opportunities that the coyotes, you know, once served uh, on my, so yeah. I, I'm actually noticing a shift on my particular, and I'm also, yeah. yeah is, have you seen some of those scenarios? Cause I think we're going to get to this, you know, how to design a property. And, and yeah, and I'm glad, right. I'm glad you brought up the foxes. Cause I was mostly got stuck on, I think, you know, raccoons and possums for a little bit there, but again, this is something that I don't, I can't tell you, um, you know, like given coyote density of X, you'll have Fox <laughs> density yeah. of Y. Yeah. But um, this is something that's been referenced for many decades in the literature um, as kind of like a, a naturalist type observation that generally speaking areas that have lots of coyotes don't have lots of foxes. It does seem like, you know, that, that competition is strongest between foxes and coyotes. So if you do have a lot of coyotes, you probably don't have many foxes. If you have a lot of foxes, that's probably because you don't have many coyotes. Um, I think that that's become pretty clear, but again, we don't understand fully the dynamics of that relationship. Um, but it stands to reason because, you know, as animals become more similar and their food habits, you would expect more competition to occur. And foxes and coyotes have a lot more similarities than coyotes and raccoons, for example. Yep. Makes sense. Okay. So that's, those are good. just little metrics or things to think about on your landscape, so to speak. But again, you know, not fully studied and assessed and, and just something sure. from an anecdotal standpoint. All right, let's talk about the concept of indiscriminate killing of coyotes. And this is a, a thing that, you know, when I was a kid running through the woods, you know, everyone was like, boy, if you get to see one and shoot one, you're, you're special. Now it's like, yeah. you know, people are, you know, having, I don't know, all sorts of different events around coyote killing. And, you know, there's been yeah. this whole dismissal of that. And that's not so there's, there's small scale and there's large scale. There's indiscriminate killing. So I want to just talk a little bit about the failures or fallacies around indiscriminate killing and does that help or hurt their populations? We're talking coyotes specifically because mm -hmm. ultimately people think the objective is they're benefiting their deer herd. And this yeah. is obviously a deer-focused podcast. So I just want to understand, and you've done a ton of research on this, so this is, this is, your, this is your area. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, if there's one point that I could share with the listeners to take home um, that kind of directly addresses your question is that you're not going to luck into reducing coyote predation. You're just not going to haphazardly find your way into, into being successful there. It's going to have to be very intentional. And I'm, I'm happy to explain why. But, um, you know, when we have this whole conversation, it, you know, it's certainly – probably most complicated when it's focused on on coyotes in particular but just in general across predators i think what makes this conversation so difficult is that there are a lot of folks that don't understand simply because they've just never been taught 
that um, it's not as simple as, you know, take one predator off the landscape and then, you know, predation is decreased by some amount. And the reason for that is because there are all sorts of mechanisms through which nature compensates, so to speak. So, you know, we can have increased reproduction among the remaining individuals that are left behind in that predator species. We can have, you know, uh, compensatory immigration where the next door neighbor predators move in because there's more resources where in the area that's been trapped. Um, Even when it comes to the prey species, you know, they they may have uh, compensatory mortality where, you know, you remove the predator source, but that ha- that animal that would have been uh, depredated if you hadn't removed that that predator um, was already weak and would have died from something else already anyway. So there's all sorts of these compensating mechanisms in nature that make this very complicated. So when it comes to when it comes to coyotes in particular, like I said, it gets even more difficult mainly because of how their populations function and because of the scale of the landscape that they utilize. And so in, in any given area, we can, we can generally go in and trap, you know, let's just say it's a several thousand acre area that we're doing a, a GPS tagging study. And let's say that um, just for simple math, we tag 10 individuals across, you know, this couple thousand acre area we can go ahead and plan on probably three of those in three of those 10 individuals, sometimes even as high as half five of those individuals probably spend less than 10% on the given property that we trapped them on. Um, so these animals are oftentimes what we refer to as nomads um, or, you know, drifters or wanderers. We don't exactly always know why, they, they travel so far and use such a large area. Um, you know, intuitively you would think that these are probably younger individuals that haven't established a territory and they're looking for a place to set up shop and they just haven't found it yet. And that probably is true in most cases, but not everyone, because we, we have seen some older individuals that exhibit, you know, these behavior patterns. So right off the bat, you know, a third to as high as a half of the individuals that you trap on a given area probably aren't impacting prey populations that much to begin with because they don't really spend much time there. So that leaves you, you know, with the remaining um, two thirds to one half of the population. And so those are probably residents. They may spend a large majority of the time on your property. And so therefore they may be driving any kind of, in this case, fallen predation that you're seeing. Um, But the problem with that is oftentimes it's difficult to catch them all. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've got, let's just say, uh, seven of those individuals left. Maybe we're really good and we trap five of them and kill five of them. So we've got two left. Well, there's a couple of things that are going to happen now. Those two individuals that are left behind, what do they have available to them? More food resources, right? Absolutely. So you would absolutely expect their body condition to improve, um, you know, if it's a male that I'm talking about, I'm now better able to defend my territory. I'm not going to let other males come in. So um, I'm going to spend more time fighting, defending my territory. I may even enlarge my territory. Um, and, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be able to secure a high quality mate. I'm going to be able to produce a high quality litter that has a high chance of survival. And so um, we may see compens- 
compensatory reproduction. If I'm a female, you know, it's even easier, right? It's like, I've got more body resources. I'm allocating that towards reproduction. My litter size goes up, my milk quality, my milk quantity goes up. So I have more pups. I feed them better. I'm producing more coyotes. And that's the way that most people think that populations compensate for predator removal. But what we actually see, and we've actually, we've done this with coyote populations and documented it. This was part of my PhD research. And, uh, Dr. John Kilgo in South Carolina, the Savannah Riverside has done the same thing. Um, but we remove those individuals and before they even have the time, have an opportunity to increase their reproductive output, they can still do that, of course. But before that even occurs, we see those individuals that represented the nomads from other populations coming in and filling in that void that's left behind. So we're getting compensatory immigration into the site. So what that all adds up to is a very rapid recovery of a population following its reduction. So in my mind, this is all about landscape balancing. And I think that's, that's my simple term behind it, but it's interesting to hear, you know, the different circumstances and for somebody to diagnose resident or non-resident understanding the range. I mean, these, these could be massive ranges that some of these coyotes travel. Can you give a sure. scale to some of the ranges that you've seen kind of just in your mind? Yeah. So um, there's been several documented instances. I mean, just right off the bat of, you know, coyotes being tagged in one state and then being found, you know, one or more States away. So that's the scale that we're potentially talking about when it comes to those nomads that don't have established territories. And now that's an extreme example in most cases, um, you think about a nomad and, and, you know, I know county size varies by state, but if you're in a state with, let's just say, you know, average size counties that we see in the Eastern United States, um, it would be very typical for a coyote to use, you know, a couple of counties up to three or four counties size area. If they're, if they don't have a well-established territory now for the ones that do that we often refer to as residents, they're probably only using a few thousand acre area. 90% of the time. Uh, the smallest home range that I've ever seen by an individual um, kind of in late winter, early spring, you know, when they're denning uh, was by an adult female and she used about five or 600 acres on a weekly basis. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the, the, the extreme ends of the spectrum when it comes to coyote space use. So, you know, we talked about them filling a niche or a void. We've also talked about now, now scale there's another philosophy, which is, which is old school. And this is the old farmer philosophy is just complete eradication. And you've mm-hmm. seen, you know, some of the strategies where there's, you know, I've, I've seen this since I was a kid, they, they would chase them with dogs and they would, they would shoot coyotes in the hundreds at, at some yeah. scale and, and, and parts of parts of the state and not knowing the impact of that, but not fully, I, I'm not able to fully assess that. Right. If people want to get into this and they, they, they enjoy trapping, they enjoy hunting you know, there's nothing wrong with if legally doing it in, in the means that you're allowed to do it, you know, right. try, trying this on the landscape. The real question is really, what is the benefit? And that that's the question that's kind of yeah. come up in my mind. And I, yeah. I just want you to kind of approach that topic. Yeah, the literature has mixed reviews on that. Um, so we have some examples of papers that show, you know, a positive effect um, on removing coyotes or removing um, you know, nest predators and things like that. And then we also have a lot of papers that show that the effect is minimal. And, um, if you boil it down and put everything into context, it typically comes down, you know, there's several factors 
that generally come out as important predictors of the relative success of a predator control program. And one that is abundantly clear is that the efficacy of a predator control program increases uh, with the land area that it impacts. So if you're on, you know, a 20 acre woodlot, you're going to be, have much less of an effect than you are across, you know, a 2000 acre property, right? Um, you can even scale up from there. I mean, in my PhD research, we were trapping 10,000 to 10,000 acre areas. Um, and we still saw compensatory immigration happen really, really rapidly. If there are barriers in the landscape, um, thinking about like a property that joins a lot of times we see, um, you know, like major river corridors, um, the coastline, or maybe even like a mountain range in some cases, that can be a barrier to immigration that'll slow it down a little bit. Um, and those things can help the help bump up the efficacy of the trapping operation, but it's still, um, going to be like a short-term gain that you're realizing through trapping. So, um, the size of the area, any barriers, um, you know, to it, like, I mean, Island, an Island would be the, obviously the ideal example, right? Cause you're, you're greatly limiting how much immigration can occur there. Um, the other thing that we've got to think about, uh, when it comes to the efficacy of the predator control program is what are the predators that are actually preying on the species of interest? And so like in the case of turkeys in particular, you know, we've got a suite of mammalian, avian, and even one that a lot of people don't think about reptilian predators and snakes, um, that could take eggs and things like that. So in those situations, it's a lot more likely that you're going to have compensatory predation where if you remove, let's just say you're really effective at removing raccoons or you're really effective at removing coyotes, that those other predators are just going to take up their role and you're still going to experience the same losses, um, through that compensatory, uh, interaction. Would it be fair to say, even in this scale, if you were consistent about it, and let's say you had a large scale was 10,000 acres and you mentioned some fragmentation or segregation between different areas with mountain ranges, rivers, et cetera, mm-hmm. if you were consistent about it, if you, if you employed this kind of mass operation, right. um, that would be somewhat serving you in some capacity. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something that I meant to get to. And then I got sidetracked a bit, but yeah. So for any predator control program to be effective for any of the predator species that we've talked about today, trapping is going to have to occur annually at a minimum. I mean, there's no if, ands or buts about it. We have documentation across species that, you know, once you, once you remove, um, the mortality source in this case, you know, trapping or shooting for a year, that population generally is going to rebound to what it was at before you trapped. So it's going to have to be recurring. Now I used to use that as kind of a justification for, you know, to tell people that they're wasting their time. And one of the, one of my motivations for doing that is because I see a lot of folks that want to move and you got, you talk a lot about habitat management on your podcast. So I think you'll appreciate this point. There's, I feel like there's just so many land managers and landowners that move past all the oftentimes non-sexy habitat work and they want to jump right into predator control. And that's one of the reasons that I've kind of minimized its efficacy as a management tool in the past is because I want to see them pay attention to their habitat first, 
not only for the benefits in, in survival, reproduction, and growth that that confers to the game species, but habitat management is predator management too, right? So, I mean, we can create, we can create vegetation communities that make predators less efficient. We've documented this, you know, in everything from, from coral reefs to tropical rainforest, um, you know, to the Great Plains. In every system, you know, habitat affects predation rates. So, yeah. um, so anyway, um, we know it's going to have to be done annually. You know, with with coyote with coyotes and deer in particular, what we generally see is if you were to have a have a particular property, you know, to go back to that ten thousand acre example that you just mentioned again. Um, if we go in and we trap year one, most of the time that trapping is going to occur towards the end of winter, beginning of spring. Um, it's kind of still a good time of the year where your catch rates are pretty high. You know, it's not getting hot. There's not a lot of alternative food sources available for predators. Fawns are about to start hitting the ground sometime around May, right? So we know we were pretty close to that that period of vulnerability. Um, generally speaking, we do that year one. And in most studies, we've seen a pretty significant increase in fawn survival or fawn recruitment, depending on how it's been measured. Either way, it's a positive uh, outcome for people that are trying to increase their deer population, right? But in the studies that have gone on beyond that, so my PhD research, we trapped a second year, and there's even been a study where they trapped for a third year. We generally find that the success rate of that, of that coyote trapping program at increasing recruitment or survival starts to become more variable. So what that nets us, you know, kind of looking at it as how does this all balance out on the balance sheet, we see modest gains in fawn recruitment and survival from continuous targeted, and it has to be very high intensity. It can't be just a couple of traps across, you know, a few thousand acres trapping programs. I, I like the way that you capped that, that uh, piece of it. And I think that that echoes with me and, and, and certainly with our listeners. I think that's important. So I'm going to get to the next piece, which you've already kind of teed it up was we, we started getting into habitat and the benefits and, I don't want to dissuade you from talking about turkeys because I know that's the focus of, of your podcast, but sure. I, want, I want to just kind of dial in on deer and, and building habitat to eliminate some of the frequency of movement. And we messaged a little bit. I talked about, you know, how to minimize course movements and things that I look at. I, I've seen some results on my own property and, you know, fortunately I think that's, that's helped me at least in my particular area. That's not to minimize you know, the benefits of, of coyotes, uh, and I actually see them as a benefit to a lot of these areas that are mismanaged, particularly ones that are having overabundance of deer and obviously sure. the carnage that exists in that scenario, particularly in the Midwest and some of those other states that really could use a little help. And the East. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a, if I, I have to throw this out there, if you've sure. got a browse line on your property, you do not need to be trapping coyotes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because um, I've seen that. I've seen that. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. What, one of the basic principles, and these are studies that have been done. They've done this with wolves and caribou and um, wolves and moose. They've looked at kind of, you know, what the impact to cut blocks are or clear cuts or cut mm -hmm. over, cutovers in your yeah. world. Uh, we, we call them clear cuts in, in my area, Canada. They call them cut blocks. And uh, anyhow. Yeah, so, we use clear cut a lot down here too. Okay, good, good. Yeah. So 
minimizing linear features is one of the attributes that I typically employ with my clients. And you yeah. know, nothing's in a linear state, meaning, you know, a direct line to line, minimizing yeah. visual advantages, faster searching, minimizing that on the, on the landscape. So minimizing these coarse movements, slowing the animal down. That's, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a strategy and it gives an avoidance, a mitigation opportunity for deer to escape. And assuming they mm-hmm. have escape cover and you've built that in your landscape design, you may benefit, you know, these particular deer that exist in your particular property. But that's, yeah. that's one strategy. I want to mm-hmm. listen to kind of some of your theoretical or maybe practical strategies that you would suggest people consider um, in building habitat and maybe building habitat for, you know, multiple focal species on your particular landscape, which we kind of alluded to earlier. So there's kind of a balancing game here. So I want to, I want to take your snippet on this and focus a little bit on deer. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, you're on the right track with a lot of what you said and I don't have, you know, there's, it's, it's hard to get, specific data, you know, telling you how to set up a property, you know, like even, even Leopold said, you know, wildlife management is part art, part science. Um, So this is kind of like, you know, we can use the science to pick up on some trends and then using those trends, we make inferences about, well, it stands to reason that, you know, if, if this is the case, then doing, if X is the case, then doing Y is probably going to result in some positive outcome. Right. Um, And so that's where a lot of this is coming from, but, the data that I do have um, it is based off of John Kilgo's original data set that he collected on coyotes and fawns out of the Savannah River site in South Carolina. Okay, um, and and I'm not gonna I'm not really gonna belabor um, describing all all the you know minute details of that study design, but this is uh, let's just suffice it to say this is a really large property. Um, he had a really great data set of fawns. I can't remember exactly how many fawns we used in that final data set. It was well over 200, um, collared fawns that, you know, they, they slapped a collar on them right after they came out, um, and hit the ground. So, and they were monitoring those fawns for mortality around the clock every eight hours. Um, so probably one of the most solid data sets on fawn survival, uh, that I'm aware of existing. And, Originally, what, what John did with that data set, and it's the same thing that several of us did kind of early in trying to figure out this equation, is we would look at fawns that lived and where they tended to bed during the day. <clears throat> and then we would compare those, um, those vegetation conditions in the area immediately around the fawn bed site between that fawn and then a fawn, uh, or between the fawns that survived and their bedding conditions and the fawns that were depredated by coyotes and what those conditions looked like. And the curious thing about it was, and this was done not just in South Carolina, but in several other states and different studies by different researchers, you know, even in different regions of the country where, um, and they found that, you know, there was very little evidence to suggest that just the vegetation composition or the density in the area immediately surrounding the fawn um, influenced fawn predation rates to cut, you know, fawn losses to coyotes. Interesting. Okay. And so what you, so what you have to think about, that's not to say that, you know, having some dense vegetation for fawns to hide in is um, a bad thing or that it's not going to help you. I think it almost certainly does help, but the key point is that we have to focus at a larger scale. And so we took that South Carolina data set and instead of just looking at the vegetation conditions 
in the area immediately surrounding fawn bed sites, we instead looked at the vegetation conditions throughout the entire fawn home range, which, you know, for that first month of life where they're fairly vulnerable, you know, you're talking about, let's just say for easy math, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 50 acres that they're going to utilize during that first month of life. And if you, it turns out that if you look in that home range at the vegetation composition, Without going into too much detail, the general pattern that we found is that fawns whose home ranges contained a greater diversity of forest types, because this was primarily a forested landscape. So the fawns that contained a greater variety of forest types and forest age classes had the least, uh, had the lowest probability of being depredated by a coyote. And the ones that had these very simple home ranges, in most cases, it was all just like contiguous um, mature hardwood forest. Those were the fawns that were most likely to succumb to coyote predation. So that's why I mentioned just a minute ago that, um, you know, my suggestion, suggestion pretty well aligns with yours, that if we can increase the complexity and the diversity of a property, we're probably going to reduce predation. Now, while we're doing that, we want to keep in mind that we're trying to provide that cover at ground level for them to hide in as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, a concept of escape cover for for deer specifically uh, in mm-hmm. these circumstances. And, and earlier I mentioned, you know, eliminate these, these kind of coarser movements across the landscapes with habitat patches, et cetera, um, yeah. small openings. What are your recommendations for somebody trying to develop kind of this escape cover opportunity? How do you create, you know, I met, I did a grouse podcast designing escape cover was a, of a was a component of that and, and mm-hmm. just how they, how they leave an area. And you've talked about this with turkeys on your particular podcast. So let's, yeah. let's quickly talk about deer. What's, what's your perspective on that? And um, maybe the goal is obviously to escape an entire area What's the distance they typically move? What, what, what do you think that would look like in, in your scenario? And physically think about how they get up and move and, and kind of, you know, leverage themselves outside, you know, the range where they're actually bedded. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to be honest with you, like when I think about escape cover for deer, you know, particularly when I'm thinking about adult deer, um, I'm mostly thinking about it from a hunting perspective, um, you know, as a deer hunter too. And then, you know, I, I spend a good bit of time, working with landowners to help them set up their properties for hunting as well. And, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, situating um, these bedding areas is oftentimes what I refer to them as Um, really, they're just undisturbed, fairly dense vegetation um, in areas that I know that deer like to feed for whatever reason. So maybe there's a food plot nearby or something like that. And I like to set those areas up so that deer can easily move from that cover to forage, you know, in the, in the morning, in the evening again, and we can kind of set up and intercept them. Um, but when I'm thinking about like how to create those and maintain them, you know, generally speaking, the barrier for most folks in trying to accomplish that is that they're going to have to get some sunlight on the ground to allow that vegetation to grow at ground level and provide that, that visual obstruction or that cover near ground level. So, if we're talking about a forested environment, a thin at a minimum, and then sometimes, you know, we might even do some patch clear cuts um, to create, you know, these a few acre area that's going to become really dense. And then as far as long-term management, if I have prescribed fire as a tool that's available to me, I know everyone doesn't depending on, you know, local regulations and things like that. But if I, if I have it available to me, 
let's say that I go in and I create, um, you know, let's just say a 10 acre, uh, area that's, that's like a bedding block or to provide bedding cover. I might divide that up into, into, you know, different sections that I'm going to burn, you know, sections so that they're staggered. And when they get burned, but all of them get burned at least every four to five years. Um, and for us, that's kind of a sweet point or, or a sweet spot down here in the South. We can generally, you know, let areas go about four to five years before they get so dense and so moist that it's hard to even get them to burn again. Um, you know, if you're somewhere with a shorter growing season, you could probably get away with a little bit longer duration of time, but that's going to be, you know, kind of your most cost effective method of maintaining those areas and that dense cover at ground level. Because as we all know, you let them go long enough and then all those leaves that are providing that visual, that visual obstruction, they start to get, you know, further and further off the ground and you've lost it. Yeah. I think those are great examples and thinking about that visual piece of it, I think is huge and physical barriers of course is another piece of that and to your example one of the things that i'm just going to recommend is that checkerboard approach which you guys have talked about Mm -hmm. in some sequence and in in those areas that are not supposed to be burned right you can have areas that that remain static um you know if there is debris in there there could be remaining debris from those areas that you did cut you could pull them into different sections you know so they don't become snags or areas that you know kind of maintain some of that fire so I want to I want to give one last principle in this or, or theory I guess. So, do deer where there's not a lot of predation, and I, I think there's there's principles around this, and, and I've read some things, you know, I'm not, and I'm not sure what I know or don't know about this particular topic, but I've noticed, and, and I'm going to just bring up the example earlier with the foxes is they did not succumb, like foxes integrated into my property as of recent, over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. And so these, these deer have not seen a lot of foxes in the landscape, at least in mm-hmm. my particular area. They've, they've really focused in on my particular property, and they're starting to get used to them, but it's basically taken a year for them to get yeah. used to this, this, this breeding pair that I have. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they're scattering all the time. It's like these foxes are doing this deer drive on my property consistently. And the, and the deer run around through the escape cover into the next bedding area. And the foxes run through their little cycle. They're, they're pretty cyclic in their movement. And mm-hmm. um, what I've noticed is, like, there's an anti-predator response of these particular deer and yeah. they're, they become, they've succumbed to this, but they're starting to get used to it. It's just taking a little bit of time. And I'm wondering, like, when you're doing your landscape design, you know, are you thinking about predation or, you know, how your deer are going to interface with these predators, so to speak? And what's going to be the net result? And, and there's a psychology, I, I guess, I would assume associated with this, where maybe animals forage at certain times as a result of, you know, predator interest in a particular area. And that was oh, yeah. kind of my example earlier with foxes running through, kicking deer off the food plot. So it's like, you know, how are they responding? And is it a negative stimuli? And and so am I going to, I actually think the foxes are great on my landscape because now I have an, I have an abundance of grouse. And I actually yeah. feel like I'm starting to have too many grouse. I mean, I, I know that's probably, <laughs> I, I know if I said that loud and I didn't mean to say that loud. <laughs> and here's, here's why I have a personal issue. So this season I'm hunting, I'm walking into my tree stand and there's I, I, these grouse for whatever reason, they're so familiar with me and the property. They follow me around like, they're yeah. like little dogs. Right. And they chase me around. Oh, that's and, hilarious. And I'm hunting this year on my property and, 
there's there's a grouse below me and it, it flies up and it's in the grapevine next to me and it keeps getting closer and I take my arrow and I poke him out of the tree and he, fl- he flies <laughs> back down and he comes back up and I'm just like, I'm literally a sitting duck. Like every deer yeah. and its brother is going to see him in this tree stand. Right. So now I got this you know, affliction with dealing with grouse on the property because they constantly <laughs> are bothering me. So I'm like, thank God for the fox. And so my kids, right. hate, my kids hate the grouse because the kids go to the property, the grouse, like they, they kind of attack them a little bit. Right. So it's like, <laughs> it's just like total, it's just total, it's a bad situation for my kids. So they carry rocks in their pockets. Now my son's always carrying his gun up there. Cause he doesn't, he doesn't want to deal with grouse. And I'm sorry, you know, like, Grouse Society listens to this podcast, and there's people, <laughs> but I'm like, this is the situation we're dealing with. They may so, want to come out and check out what you're doing on your property after <laughs> they hear this. Yeah, yeah, but so I, I just kind of want to know this whole anti-predator response, and like, what what's your take on that? Is it meaningful? Like, is it something yeah. we should be concerned with as hunters? Like, I, I just want to know your take. Yeah, this is so good. I'm glad you asked because it's one of the things that I enjoy talking about the most that a lot of people aren't even aware of, but you know, we all think about predators and how they affect prey numerically. You're right. You're killing some of them and reducing their numbers oftentimes. Um, You know, not all the time. Prey species have ways of compensating for predation, just like predators have ways of compensating for trapping or or shooting. But anyway, my point is, um, is that that's the way that most folks think about it. And what, you know, many fewer think about is how does it actually alter? How does the threat of predation actually alter the behavior of the deer. And, uh, we published a paper several years ago on this. Several others have published similar papers, both for white-tailed deer. Um, there's been stuff done from elk and the Yellowstone ecosystem, probably the most famous examples, but essentially what all of these papers fall into is kind of this ecological topic of the landscape of fear. That's the way that we refer to it. And, in the particular data set that we published on it, just for the sake of time, I'll go into that one because it has, you know, a lot of similar themes with the other ones that I mentioned, you know, essentially what we did is we were tracking uh, coyote abundance, you know, as a result of our trapping program to see how effective it was at reducing coyote abundance. And concurrently with that, we were also running these really formalized high density grids of cameras to document, you know, both fawn recruitment changes in response to, you know, trapping, um, but we were also running those camera grids to document white-tailed deer behavior. And so over the course of the years of that study, um, coyote abundance ebbed and flowed as a function of trapping. And in generally, in general, what we found is that deer are more relaxed when there's fewer coyotes on the landscape. And so, you know, what we refer to this as is vigilance behavior. You know, how much time does a deer spend, uh, you know, oblivious to the world, y'all, you know, almost all your listeners, I assume are hunters. And so, you know, they're well aware of the fact that, you know, a deer that walks out into an open food plot, puts his head down and feeds, you know, for a couple of minutes without even picking its head up and looking around. That's a very relaxed deer. That is a non-pressured deer compared to the one that comes out and puts his head down to eat. And oftentimes doesn't even take a bite. You know, they'll, they'll almost like juke you out or they'll put their head down like they're going to feed and they pick it back up and see if you moved. You know yeah, what I'm talking yeah, about? I do. Yep. Um, and so that's kind of like the contrast. It's not that extreme. You know, we have to, we have to quantify thousands of individual observations of deer to even pick up on this trend. It's not that extreme. I don't want to paint it like that, right. but we do see some more 
relaxed behavior, deer that are spending more time feeding and less time being vigilant when the primary predator, in this case coyotes in this particular study, is occurring at a, at a lower abundance. And so the immediate thing that I think about, um, you know, in light of that finding as a deer hunter is if I'm hunting a property that has fewer coyotes, my deer are probably not as on high alert and they're probably more susceptible to me. And I need all the advantages I can get cause I'm not the best hunter in the world, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but the other, you know, like kind of a secondary or tertiary even effect of that that we don't think about is a deer that spends more time relaxed and feeding is a deer that puts on more body weight, right? Or that acquires more resources to put into, you know, twin fawns and the milk that they require or a buck that puts more resources into antler development. So these things can have, you know, affect population level effects on vital rates and then individual quality that a lot of times we're trying to maximize, especially in like in a trophy management scenario um, that are kind of, that are really interesting to think about. So, you know, there is something to that, that there are um, kind of these indirect behavioral effects of um, a landscape of fear where in areas where a deer is more likely to be depredated is probably going to spend more time vigilant, more time on edge and less time eating and places where abundance of that predator is lower uh, the opposite is likely going to be true. So speaking to that, um, I am actually going to gonna try a little bit of an experiment this year on the, the, the property that I hunt. I'm going to be trapping um, here in a few weeks after our deer season ends. I know it's surprisingly late probably for most of your listeners, it but we run, all, yep. we run all the way through February 10th here. Um, the week of uh, uh, MLK Day is typically our hottest rut action, actually here but um anyway as soon as deer season's over i'm gonna do a little bit of trapping on the place that i hunt um you know i'm not i don't have this grand expectation that next year we're gonna see twice as many fawns and that every mature buck on the property is gonna walk around during daylight hours without a care in the world but i am gonna be interested to see maybe we pick up a few fawns here and there get a little modest bump in recruitment and then maybe our deer are a little bit more relaxed when they walk out into things like, you know, food plots, power line right that we often hunt and, and other openings and, and areas like that. Very interesting. I love this conversation. Uh, the depth of your knowledge and experience, obviously you've studied this for a long time. You're a practitioner. Um, you're not just the poop man. Uh, you, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> you, you, you're you're a wealth of knowledge. It's been a pleasure to listen to you and Marcus on on your podcast, and I've appreciated all the content you've had, the timber management. I really stress that folks listen to your podcast that listen to me. I think there's some overlaps there, um, at least in strategy and. You know, yeah, you're, you're just experience is, is tremendous. I, I think some of the research papers you've done over the years, and I've paid attention to you, and I've told you that before. Um, I, th- I think you're doing, you know, certainly justice, and you're a huge resource to people. And, and uh, you know, I appreciate kind of your insight into this topic today. And, uh, you know, ho- like to have you again on in the future, maybe a different topic. Uh, but I love, yeah. love the predator talks and certainly something that, that was informational to me and, and made me think a little bit more about how I'm doing landscape design and, and certainly how I'm going to approach, you know, some things going forward. So I appreciate you well. 
Yeah, I appreciate all that, John. And uh, yeah, happy to happy to talk anytime. Predators are fascinating. So, awesome. I mean, it's kind of one of those things that sometimes they're they're a pain in the ass, but they're also like I can't help but you know be fascinated by them at the same time. Yeah. So, well said, well said. All right, man. We'll talk to you soon, and uh, you know, be safe the rest of the hunt season. Hopefully, you kill a monster. All right, sounds good. Thanks, John. Have a good one. All right, you too. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.